The Westminster Confession of Faith was first published in 1646. It was the result of the hard work done by a group of men called the Westminster Divines. Their goal was to outline what they believed the Scriptures principally taught. And it has been said that the Church of Christ cannot be creedless and live. Thankfully, the Westminster Confession of Faith has been the creed of the Reformed Church for almost 400 years. This podcast seeks to point you to Christ, to help you navigate the Westminster Confession of Faith, and to see you understand what you believe and why you believe it. Welcome to This We Confess. Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 31 of Synods and Councils, Paragraphs 1 and 2. For the better government and further edification of the Church, there ought to be such assemblies as are commonly called synods or councils. Paragraph 2. As magistrates may lawfully call a synod of ministers and other fit persons to consult and advise with about matters of religion, so if magistrates be open enemies to the church, the ministers of Christ of themselves, by virtue of their office, or they with other fit persons, upon delegation from their churches, may meet together in such assembly. Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 91 of This We Confess. Today we begin a discussion of chapter 31, of synods and councils, and for many in the modern church there is nothing more important than independence. Christians declare themselves to be non-denominational, and local congregations operate without any regard for the church Catholic. But was it supposed to be this way? Chapter 31 of our confession would suggest not. Paragraph 1 is clear. For the better government and further edification of the church, there ought to be such assemblies as are commonly called synods or councils. And so, as Reformed Christians, we believe that on occasion there is need for assemblies, synods or councils. Regardless of what these gatherings are called, they will bring together leaders of the church to discuss, debate and consider the spiritual health of the denomination. I am part of the Irish Presbyterian Church, and in my denomination, this teaching is worked out at various levels. Firstly, each congregation is governed by spiritual leaders called elders. These elders meet on a regular basis, and their responsibility is to watch over the spiritual health of a local congregation. The elder is to be a man of prayer, who will be among the people of his district on a regular basis. But these elders are not independent. Each elder is ordained by his local presbytery, and is therefore accountable to that presbytery. What is a presbytery? It is a gathering of elders from a geographical district. I am part of the Down Presbytery, which runs from Cumber in the north to Downpatrick in the south, from Killyleigh in the east to Macra Hamlet in the west, and indeed on a good day in Macra Hamlet's graveyard, you can see a good chunk of our presbytery in the distance. 
the presbytery meets regularly to oversee the work in the wider area, and it exists to help local congregations in their gospel work, and if there are ever any difficulties, then the presbytery can offer its help to local congregations. Yet even the presbytery is not independent. Each presbytery is accountable to the General Assembly, which meets on a yearly basis. And the General Assembly is made up of elders from across Ireland, from all the presbyteries on this island of ours, and every congregation in the presbytery has a right to send representatives to the General Assembly. And additionally, on occasion, our denomination has called special synods, called to consider the work of the church on this island. All of this is well and good, but to many it seems excessive in this day and age. Shouldn't we just all get on with the work, you in your small corner and I in mine? While we might like to sing that song in Sunday school, the idea of synods and councils and the interdependence of the church is a biblical one. In Acts chapter 15, we see the functioning of the Jerusalem council. In verse 1, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so we see the issue at hand. Salvation was of grace, but also of works. Was that true? Was that how it was to work out? And so, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the elders and the apostles about this question. And so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And so in the days after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see a theological dispute rising up. And how did the church deal with it? Not independently from one another. One church in the north didn't decide that circumcision was necessary for salvation and then a church in the south decided that it was not the case. Instead, the church gathered in Jerusalem. The council of Jerusalem was held. The elders and the apostles were together. They considered and debated and discussed the matter. And in verse 28, we see their decision. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. And so at the Council of Jerusalem, a decision was taken around circumcision and salvation. It was then relayed to the wider church as an authoritative decision that needed to be well regarded. There have been various councils since, and as I've already stated, we as Presbyterians continue to meet on a regular basis with the wider church. Independence from the wider body is not a biblical notion. Indeed, the Apostle Paul would say exactly this in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 onwards. 
For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And so the church of Jesus Christ is made up with a multitude of different parts, However, they do not exist in blissful ignorance and separation from one another, but they are part of the one body. They are interdependent. And therefore, we believe that the structures enjoyed by Reformed believers are founded upon and agreeable with Holy Scripture, and we believe that they are good for the Church. The Westminster Divines state a twofold purpose behind synods and councils. Firstly, that the church would be better governed, and secondly, for the edification or the upbuilding of the church. Good church government helps in both of these areas. It keeps the denomination from scandal, it protects ministers, it protects congregations, and by the grace of God it helps protect the truth of the gospel. Synods and councils show our interdependence, and they improve governance, and they strengthen local churches. But with that stated, paragraph 2 becomes quite controversial. It states, As magistrates may lawfully call a synod of ministers and other fit persons to consult and advise with about matters of religion, so if magistrates be open enemies to the church, the ministers of Christ of themselves, by virtue of their office, or they with other fit persons, upon delegation from their churches, may meet together in such assemblies. The Westminster Assembly was itself called by the civil authorities of the day, and so our forefathers saw no issue with magistrates lawfully calling a synod of ministers and other fit persons to consult and advise with about matters of religion. Indeed, they saw this very thing in Scripture. In Second Chronicles chapter 19 and verse 8 to 11, King Jehoshaphat appointed certain Levites and priests and heads of families of Israel to give judgment for the Lord and to decide disputed cases, and they had their own seat at Jerusalem. And then in Second Chronicles 29, in the first year of his reign, that is, King Hezekiah, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east, and said to them, Hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves, and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. And even in Matthew 2, verse 4-5, to wicked King Herod assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people, and he inquired of them 
where the Christ was to be born. And so the Westminster Assembly was called by the civil authorities of the day. And indeed, there are biblical examples of kings calling religious leaders to discuss the religious issues. However, many who have accepted the Westminster Confession have found this problematic. Scottish and American Presbyterians in particular have wrestled with this paragraph and even introduced some amendments to it. But what is the problem? Well, in a nutshell, it comes down to separation between church and state. The Westminster divines perhaps lived in days where the state was sympathetic to the cause of the Reformed faith, but we do not live in such days. Should our civil government be able to dictate when, where and how a church should meet? If we are commanded by the civil authorities to stop preaching the gospel, should we comply? Should the civil authorities have any say whatsoever in the work of Christ? No. The affairs of the church are no business of the state. However, however, if there was an occasion where the state sought the counsel of the church around a matter of religion, then I think we would do well to meet and to advise. Such a circumstance would not have been strange in 1646, but it is hard to imagine the state seeking the help of the church today or inquiring about a certain theological issue. Yet regardless of how warm the state is towards the church, the Westminster divines wanted to stress that the church could continue its business without any request or permission from the state. And so the church is the kingdom of God. It is not the kingdom of man. But even with that said, the church does have responsibilities towards the state. The Lord tells us in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 1 onwards. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. But the church does not need to sit and to wait for the state's permission to continue its work. And even if the magistrate of the day is an open enemy of Christ, the church has been blessed with ministers of Christ who by their own authority can call synods, councils, assemblies, sessions and presbyteries for the better government and further edification of the church of Christ. Often in my own denomination, we speak of the courts of the church, and I know we can often see them as dull, boring, and a little bit dusty. But I trust that as we consider chapter 31, we will come to realize again the importance of the topic. The church is not made up of thousands of independent fellowships throughout the world who have nothing to do with one another. Instead, we are part of the one universal Catholic church. Christ himself has instituted a government within his church, and those elders hold the keys to the kingdom. And as we have seen today, they are also accountable to other elders in other fellowships who frequently come together in synods and councils. This is not dour irrelevancy, but it is by the grace of Jesus Christ, who governs his church as he sees fit. As wise King Solomon once wrote, Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counsellors there is safety.
As always, here are some questions for you to consider. Question 1. Beginning at the local church level, explain the structure of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. Question 2. What twofold purpose lies behind synods and councils? Question 3. Why has paragraph 2 often proved controversial? Question 4. Should the church be willing to meet if the state government so requests? And question 5. Why does the church not need the permission of the state to meet in synods and councils or indeed on the Lord's Day? That's all for today. As always, my name is Scott Woodburn. And until next time, this we confess.